Hello, and welcome to the Happy You're Here podcast. In this show, we talk about tools, techniques, and ideas to help us live more fulfilling lives. In this episode, we have Bridget Lavin, spiritual practitioner, previous yoga studio owner here in Omaha, Nebraska, and retreat leader. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. We, we've met a few times uh, and, and had kind of very interesting spiritual-based conversations or like what is spirituality even conversation. So yes. I was excited when you said that you would come come uh, be on my podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to see where the conversation goes. Yeah, me too. So tell us a little bit about your background. I, I kind of give a broad strokes there, but I'm interested to... Yeah, so I guess I've always kind of considered myself a philosopher, even from the age of eight. I was that child that asked, why am I here? Uh, <laughs> oh, what which, a complicated question to answer Yes. <laughs> oh, it scared, it scared the shit out of my mother. Um, <laughs> um, but so I was always kind of seeking for, for reason and um, wanting to find, um, find the, the answers to the mystery of life. Like, why are we here? What is our purpose? Who are we? I asked those questions from a very young age. And I was fortunate enough to find yoga uh, when I was 12 or 13 years old. And my friends and I just signed up for a little, it was actually at the JCC, the Jewish Community Center. And it was a little six-week series. And my friends were like, oh, this will be a fun summer activity. And they all laughed, thought it was weird and woo-woo. And I loved it. I went home to my mom. I was like, mom, I think this helps with my anxiety because I was also an anxious child. Mm -hmm. And there was just something about it that kind of clicked for me. Like, this is this is going to give me answers. Um, and so I did yoga throughout my high school. And it was just something I did mostly to keep me calm and de-stress and make me okay in my body because, you know, high school is hard. Um, and then I fell away from it, you know, had my, my dark years like we all have, getting into drinking in college. And um, I really struggled with an eating disorder. And I think a part of me knew that as soon as I got back on my mat, I was going to have to cut out those antics and really focus on those questions again. And uh, so sure enough, I, I found my way back to the practice. And I think the first class I took um, after like a two, three year break, I found myself just sobbing on my mat because I was like, this is home, this home, mm. this philosophy. It's not just the physical movement of the practice, but this philosophy is in my bones. It's in my blood. And it's, it's going to give me the answers that I want, or at the very least, it's going to make me okay. Not needing to know the answers. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, so that was when I was about 22, 23. And I think Six months from that that class I had take, I was in my teacher training, and I chose to go to an ashram. I really wanted to get the the deeper spiritual experience and live that um, spiritual lifestyle where you wake up every morning and you're in prayer and meditation and ritual and and movement before you even have your breakfast. And I loved it. I loved mm. it. I loved every minute of it. Um, such a beautiful experience that I still hold near and dear to my heart. Um, and I. I really did go with the intention of healing. Like I, I just, again, wanted that contentment. I wanted that happiness that I had seen in other people who, who never asked, like, why are we here? I would look at my peers and be like, why aren't they asking these questions? And yet they're happy. Um, and so I was really searching for that and um, went to my teacher training after those answers, not necessarily to teach. Um, but it turned out I kind of had a knack for it. It just was, again, something that felt right and channeled really easily through me. Um, so I liked it and people were very encouraging, like you should teach. Uh, so I did. So I started teaching and, um, taught in Colorado for a couple years at the resorts, uh, before moving back to Omaha, my hometown. And 
I moved back to Omaha in 2014 and I was like, you know what? I think I can make yoga my full-time living if I just pick up 15 classes. I just need to pick up 15 classes. And within three months, I had 15 classes on the schedule at various uh, studios. And um, yeah, I I loved teaching. I loved um, sharing the practice with people. I loved every every moment of those years. And then um, I got encouragement again from students. It was like, you should start your own studio instead of having all your classes at different places and we have to follow you around. Like we want to go mm-hmm. wherever you are. Uh, so in 2015, I started the process of opening Lighthouse Yoga. And um, it was one of the proudest things I've ever created. It uh, was such a, a beautiful gift I felt like from the universe even though I was co-creating with the universe the the universe was very much assisting me in its creation um, and it became this space for people to come and to heal and to learn about the practice of yoga and move their bodies and it, it it's an honor to be able to witness people on their journeys you know my journey itself is beautiful but then to have this moment where I'm like wow I get to witness other people as they find answers for themselves and as they ask those hard questions and as they find their commitment or their contentment like I get to witness this so I loved it um but I I didn't love all of the intricacies of owning a studio or owning a business mm-hmm. you know the marketing yeah. the ads like I love teaching yoga I loved teaching the teacher trainings. I love talking about the philosophy. I love getting into those existential conversations. But the marketing, the like rent pay, like all that stuff, not my jam. So I was already kind of feeling like I wanted to take a break. And then COVID hit. And again, it was kind of the universe giving me a way out or, or not a way out, but like a way to reroute and go somewhere mm. new. And uh, so we decided to close up shop after five beautiful, wonderful years. Um, and I went to get my master's in Scotland and I wanted to study something. I love being a student, again, seeking those answers to those questions. Who are we? What are we? Why are we here? Um, so I chose to get my master's in science and religion. And um, it was really, really intense. And it made me question everything that I had learned throughout my yoga journey. Um, but I, I love loved every minute of it as well. And I just recently returned. And now I'm feeling really inspired and renewed to kind of blend what I learned, you know, teaching for eight years of yoga and and academic side of science and religion and bring them together in retreat form so that I can share share what I've learned with people. And ho- I don't want to make any claims that, oh, I found the answer to the mystery <laughs> of life. But I, I think each, each year I get a little bit more accepting and not needing to know the answers. And that provides me a lot of contentment. Um, so I it's hope... It's almost like that is the answer. Yeah. I mean, if you look... If, I feel like if you... The more you search for that answer the more it circles back around to stop asking the question. That's the answer. Exactly, exactly. And so it's funny because I used to always call myself a seeker. Uh And now I don't like to use that word because truly what I seek is to be in a place where I seek nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, because seeking is a source of suffering. So it's like when we're constantly in the state of seeking Mm -hmm. the answers or whatever or content, even if we're like catch 22 is when you're in the process of like seeking contentment, you are actually putting up a barrier to your own contentment like that yes uh it's probably there's probably a place for it and a time for it because there's other stuff that you got to get out of the way first mm-hmm. but then eventually it's like that is mm-hmm. one of the last barriers is like when do you stop pushing yes the practice right yeah they actually say i, I think ram das talks about it he says on your journey to enlightenment the last thing you give up before enlightenment is your desire to be enlightened 
Yeah. You know, because yeah. you, but you need a little bit of that curiosity. It's push and you. Yeah. Yeah. You need yeah, that curiosity first. and that beginner's mind, that desire to, to be open to learning different things, I think is also important. So it's a little bit paradoxical, but um, yeah, that's a little bit of my story. As brief as I can give it, I was trying to be short, so. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's nice to know, like, personally learn you know more about where you're coming from and yeah um you know you said a couple of things there that I'd like to touch on a little bit I feel like this is where the conversation is going is that uh that paradox right there because you you mentioned that you know you were looking around and you had friends or people that you knew that it's like they seem perfectly content mm-hmm. and you're like you're not even asking the right questions and, <laughs> and you're like what is the meaning yeah. of all this and then you know at what do you think that do you think some of us are just programmed or our personalities are just kind of wired to want to ask and understand mm-hmm. why and understand mm-hmm. so deeply that that is a source of, um, it's a source of knowledge for us, but it's also a source of suffering. Mm-hmm. And like some people just aren't wired that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I, I'll be honest, I do, I do give into the belief of reincarnation and in yoga, we talk about holding some scars in the body, which are are kind of pre-patterned behaviors mm-hmm. that we might come into this life already having. And so, yes, I think there's that we are culturally shaped and shaped by our nurturing in this life. I also hold that the belief that we have kind of certain, yeah, we call them patterns that we come into this life with. I think I've had a pattern of being... In that more philosophical thinker. Um, and it's not that not having that pattern makes you better or worse. It's just, I think everyone is going to wake up at different times and that's just the way that it's designed, why it's designed that way, who designed it that way. I, I don't, I'm not going to make any claims to know any of that. Um, but I do believe that, um, your patterning, your some scars will, will, uh, play into your spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And so whenever, so I, I've come to the point where when there's someone that seems very, what I would say, asleep or um, not awake, um, and not only not awake, but doesn't even care to wake up, Yeah. Um, I don't like to say, oh, they're just never going to wake up. I'm just like, oh, it just might not be in their spiritual journey in this lifetime. And that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rule, the first noble truth of Buddhism, so there is suffering, but there's another noble truth that... Uh, like as far as practical advice goes, and it's to see the nobility in everyone. And what re- that really means is to see the ability and the capacity for every single person to be enlightened. Mm-hmm. So for younger me, I was like, why aren't these people waking up? It was very frustrating yeah. for me. And now that I you know, have grown in my journey, I'm like, you know what? They're going to wake up when they're ready, when, they're, when it's in their patterning. Like we're all destined for that. So I'm just going to trust in that. And my, my waking up, my, uh, spiritual journey is happening in this lifetime the way it's supposed to be happening. And it's okay that it's different than other people's. Yeah. I think that's, that's something we see a lot in younger people, Mm -hmm. myself included when I was younger, but it's, it's kind of interesting to watch in, in this world where young people have a microphone or a, (laughs) a speakerphone that they get to yell at people with. Yeah. Uh, that quite literally it's the, the, some people just kind of have certain but the the thing is is like there's something to learn from everybody like what yes. i learned being raised in a rural area mm-hmm. uh leaving I went, I went to quite uh like progressive cities pittsburgh and austin texas which is obviously like yeah. very spiritually progressive 
uh, and then moving back to that rural area, um, when I grew up, I had that like sense of judgment of the people that were around me. But when I came back, I had already started the, the like Buddhist path and, and kind of had, had learned to look at, obviously I forget this from time to time, but I, I had learned to, to look at, um, people that I disagree with or think that, um, you know, intellectually think that they're doing things that are harmful to them or people around them mm-hmm. or have harmful thought, uh, patterns or beliefs, mm-hmm. um, or just believe things that I don't understand. Right. It's mm-hmm. not that, uh, I do th- think there is within it's on different layers, right? There's context of like, is it wrong in, in like, is it harming mm-hmm. people in your community? Maybe that should be addressed, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I think this is actually where it gets really sticky for a yeah. lot of people, myself included, because if I default back to some of the Eastern traditions philosophy on morality, the, the, their truth is that there is no right or wrong. Yeah. And that it's all part of the greater picture. Mm-hmm. And that the signing anything as right or wrong is also going to lead to suffering. So the more that we like grip onto that, well, that is wrong, right? It is wrong to hurt someone. Um, and, and our humanhood really, really believes that the further we actually get from that spiritual connection that, but it's all perfect. It's all right. us learning. And that's the purpose of life. So, but it is near impossible to tell that to someone who, you know, had a, a friend that was murdered, right? Like you, you can't just go yeah. around saying that. So it, it gets really sticky, especially the deeper you get into the spiritual teachings, because there is a non-attachment and a non-personal, um, nature to some of these ancient teachings that, that don't really say anything is wrong. Right. Well, I think that the thing that is, has given me some amount of um, perspective on that, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you have some interesting <laughs> perspective on this, is that there's like different layers to, to ourself, right? There, there's the self that is acting out in this role that we have in whatever our community is in mm-hmm. this time and place. There's the greater, more expanded self, but we also still have to remember we're playing this role right here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's some things that um, we may be called to do mm-hmm. in this like smaller uh, mm-hmm. context that are important in the grand picture of things. Yeah. That, and it's hard to identify where that, that for me at least, it's been hard to identify where that, that line is, right? Of mm-hmm. like, I either get completely detached which mm-hmm. doesn't feel right either to be just completely detached and be like, well, I'm just going to walk out in the woods and never come back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, clearly that's, if, if I came here, you know, that's probably not the reason that I, that mm-hmm. I'm existing in this particular life, in this particular society at this mm-hmm. particular time, but finding out what is that, what am I supposed to be doing in these circumstances that you run up to again and again and again, mm-hmm. uh, but then also not attaching with that the role that you're playing right now at a, on a, like a, a yeah. grander level is a tightrope. <laughs> it is. It is a big tightrope. And it's, um, I think Carolyn May says we're currently at a phase of existence where we're learning how to be detached like Buddha and intimate like Jesus. Mm. And it's this idea that, you know, there, there is a bigger picture that we as humans can't see that is beyond the identities that we hold here in this lifetime. And at the same time, um, we are deeply connected. Whether you believe that we are a single consciousness or not, there is no denying the truth that we are deeply connected and how we live our lives is going to affect the other. And so I think what it comes down to or like the natural progression of a spiritual evolution is um, 
you start to see that, well, to, to hurt another is to harm myself mm-hmm. or to do, to act in this way is to harm myself. And so morality then in that sense stems from this, this understanding and this remembrance that what is, what is in one is in the whole. And so slowly we start to stop murdering each other, stop stealing from each other, stop being mean to each other because we realize if we're doing all that, we're doing that to ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tricky because those things are all reactions to mm-hmm. circumstances that, uh, I mean, I, there's certain people that are just have, have, you know, um, distorted worldviews, I guess, that, that kind of seek out uh, an opportunity to harm someone else but usually there's a reason for that obviously mm-hmm. whether that's in the past life or this life right um but then there's also like a lot of systematic things that are happening in our society and it's like at what level do we engage with that right mm-hmm. is what i read a lot of stoicism and, and mm. what's, what's interesting <laughs> within stoicism is like yeah. they actively encourage practitioners to engage in in like the political process and right. in the the processes of society mm-hmm. um which obviously was quite controversial at in like the roman era when mm-hmm. things were going from being um you know a republic that was like kind of not great in some ways but also mm-hmm. like uh, you know raised the standard of living for a lot of people mm-hmm. uh to the transition to the empire which mm-hmm. was a whole different yeah. <laughs> thing uh which is interesting because it the the politics of that happening is like so similar to what's happening mm-hmm. in society. Not that I think we're going to turn into that, but yeah. there's just a lot of the same struggling with like, how does an individual exist in this, um, sit in these systems that seem like we have no influence over, but also realizing that we actually do have some influence over it. And mm-hmm. then once you realize that, what do you do with that influence? Yeah. Do you do anything with it? You know, th- those are those <laughs> yeah. questions that, uh, you know, stoicism doesn't give you any answers by the way. Yeah. It just, asks you to yeah. ask the questions well and i'm pretty sure marcus aurelius like as as wonderful as some of his meditations he left behind were he still was engaging in war and <laughs> oh yeah i mean he persecuted the, cro- the uh, christians yeah and, like, i mean but but that's the thing it's like that's where it's like the i actually don't consider marcus aurelius like the the, the stoic the, the, the the yeah he just was the most well-known stoic mm, i don't think okay. he was the most thoughtful stoic uh, or the lived it out the best. I yeah. think he's a good example, though. Of, uh, him and, and uh, Seneca are good mm-hmm. examples of yeah. uh, Stoics that wrote honestly about how hard it was to live by the Stoic values mm-hmm. when when it came to reality. Yeah, you know. And it's interesting too that you consider them to be like like encouraging to be more politically involved because they they from what i know of stoicism which is very little but they have a very that non-attached view that it's like ultimately you can't change anything but your opinions and attitudes on the situation you can't change the situation all you can change is like how you react to it um which is also very yogic yeah the the piece of it is that that mm -hmm. you, you by choosing how you react to things and how you your own uh, bubble of actions right yeah you actually are you're not you don't have control mm-hmm. the, like we think influence and control are the same thing yeah They're two very different things yes like, i can influence uh the way that you perceive me but i can't control in any way the mm-hmm. way that you perceive me uh, yeah i agree and i love that that difference and that distinction that you're making and i i wanted to comment on something you said about kind of the the individual and the collective, mm-hmm. I, I personally feel like we're in this uh, this shift in our 
our ideas about society. Um, so for the longest time, the, the society was the more important part, right? Like the individual was kind of put to the side and it was like, no, you need to do things for the good of society. And that was kind of the collective of our, our mental or like that, that was our, um, yeah, that was our belief in, of inhumanity. Tribalism, sorry, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here, but tribalism was, was at our core. It was in our psychology. And then the 60s and the 70s happened. And basically, we woke up to the self. We woke up to the individual. Mm. And we had this shift happen in which we were no longer focusing on the collective. If you think about it, back in like the 1800s, nobody would say, I'm going to just go take a moment for myself. Right? Yeah. Like nobody would say that because the collective, the family was always the bigger picture, was always more important. Um, and then we had this revival of the individual and this revival of the self and this revival of the individual spiritual growth journey. And I think now we're, we're trying to figure out how to do both. How yeah. do we care for the collective and the individual? How do we honor that we are all, all our own distinct person and at the same time recognize that we are part of this, this bigger society and there's a lot of things that need some help yeah. right now. And I, I don't know. I think we all have different paths and roads for how we can contribute to that bigger picture into society. And it's not a one size fit all. It's not like, okay, we all need to stop what we're doing and do this. This is right. how we're going to fix it. It's everyone kind of needs to decide for themselves what is the best way to influence the world. And for some people, the best way to influence the world is to be down at the courthouse protesting. Um, some people are in DC. Some people are on social media. You know, some people are making podcasts and other people are like, I'm just going to raise my babies with kindness. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. I think that's the most powerful thing that you could do. Like, it, yeah. I used, I used to get really stuck on that. Like, you know, and, and sometimes I fall back into that of like, I was, I was always obsessed with impact. Right. Like, uh, which was quite millennial, millennial of me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but obsessed with this idea that like I had to do something that mattered mm-hmm. on some grand scale uh, with my life or with with the limited time that I have. And what I realized at one point eventually was that the, where I kept getting feedback that I was actually making an impact on individuals' lives mm-hmm. um, and was literally just by doing my own healing work. And, you know, through my own recovery journey and then talking about that and being kind to people. And then that was when I kept getting these reflections back in other people going like, hey, you said that one thing to me and that like changed how I thought about all of this stuff. And I didn't kill myself because of that. Or I started this, uh, you know, charity or whatever. Like I've had Mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting kind of feedback points come back to me and be like, and they're always things that I didn't think was significant at the time. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, that's just, I'll be nice to this person because that's the right thing to do. Or, you know, I'll just share my perspective on this, um, which is usually a softer touch than most men. <laughs> yeah. uh, which, you know, I think we each have our ability to talk to specific people that look and, and are like us because we have a tendency to listen to people that are like us a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, and it's eventually what I realized was it's just like, oh, as long as, it's not selfish of me to take the time to work on myself mm-hmm. and learn to come at each interaction uh, from a cleaner place, mm-hmm. I guess I could say, like a, a less uh, convoluted, stressed, angry, you know, all of those like toxins, mm-hmm. uh, energetic toxins that can like cling to us. But <laughs> if you don't take time to filter it and clear it, yeah. then you bring those to your interactions. But if you're a clear filter for the universal love and kindness that exists underneath it all, 
Like that's a re- that's a powerful thing. Yeah. You know, and those ripple effects of that influence. You influence one person, mm-hmm. and then that they influence a hundred more people, and those hundred people influence a thousand people, and it's like our daily little actions really matter. Yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. And while I I do wholeheartedly believe that we need to take care of the collection, and especially the collective right now, we're needing connection and community. Mm-hmm. I've always believed that in order to heal the collective, we need to heal the individual first. Because if we have a bunch of wounded individuals trying to to heal the collective, right, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna get to where we want to go. Um, so yeah, I whole, wholeheartedly agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I see. And and uh, I don't know if you know who Young Pueblo is. Mm, He's like mm-hmm. a poet on on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I listened to a podcast. He used to be an activist. Like he mm-hmm. organized uh, protests uh, and then quit at one point to go practice mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> to do Vipassana. Uh, and uh, through that, because what he learned was basically like, what are we, because he kept winning. And then the things that, uh, the solutions that they would come up with or, or basically they'd win and then be so angry that it was all about taking down whoever they won against. Mm. And it wasn't about actually solving a problem and coming out of kindness. And then he realized like, oh, all of us that are, like, we realize there's something wrong uh, in some sense of the word, right? Um, or something that could be improved. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of coming at it with a deep passion for what we'd like to see instead, we just go attack that thing we don't like. And we never, by doing that, you're not actually fixing anything. You're just mm-hmm. continuing the cycle of anger and hate that yeah. is happening. Even though you, no one that's angry and hateful would perceive themselves, uh, or like a lot of people that are, wouldn't perceive themselves as mm-hmm. angry and hateful. They think they're passionate about something that they love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. in doing that, they're attacking something. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's important that we take a step back and we, figure out what's going on with ourselves first so that then we can come to those things, come to those interactions and those social changes that need to happen from a place of here's ideas that we could do instead and here's a better way for us to interact and change things rather than burning stuff to the ground. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think along with like them attacking and being angry, they're creating more separation and more mm-hmm. division. And the more that you, even even when it's with the intention of helping, um, when you are like, oh, I'm going to help them, or I really want to help refugees, or I really want to help the, the homeless, you're still drawing a separate line yeah, between right. yourself as the helper and them that need help, right? And yeah. that that's a tricky fine line too that you want to be careful of because, again, as soon as you draw those separation lines, you're going to get further away from the truth of that we are one, which in my opinion is a necessary belief for us to have if we're going to, if the human, (laughs) human species is going to survive. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's tough to, it's, it's tough to do that sometimes when we're in a society that is, like you said, it's kind of, we're going down both paths. The, Mm -hmm. the, well, there's like the wholesome self and then there's the like, um, less wholesome self. I'm trying to think. Of, <laughs> I'm trying to think of. There's like the the self that is um, the suffering self, I guess, and the wholesome self. I'll yeah. just call it that. Okay. Um, and in our society, it's like uh, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, there was the advertising movement of the '50s that specifically was designed to influence culture to make us think more as individuals, so that we'd be separated more, so mm-hmm. that we would consume more. Uh, 
And it's like that lines up exactly with that time period of, yeah. of people seeking their own like personal spiritual journeys as well. But I think it's because we became separated and we mm-hmm. were looking around being like, wait, something's wrong here. We didn't know exactly what that was. So that's mm-hmm. when addiction really took off in this country as well. Yeah. Like a lot of, of problems stemmed out of that. Um, I'm reading a book about the history of caffeine right now too. Oh, interesting. And, and it's interesting because caffeine coincided with uh, early enlightenment like the enlightenment era mm. and also but that at the same time was this first era in in europe where people started thinking like i know better <laughs> and i can dismantle this system and then basically use all of these resources in mm-hmm. in the natural world to my advantage uh and that's when colonialism started like a lot of yeah. it and i mean like this book is obviously taking a pretty large leap uh, yeah by basically blaming caffeine uh <laughs> It's probably a combination of many things yeah. as as things are. But the caffeine, you know, solidifies uh, and enhances the part of our brain, that literally in the neuroscience mm-hmm. of it, the, the, the frontal part of our brain that is the thinking, the analytical, the, like, yeah. solid self. So it's like uh, him. he in the book says, it's uh, uh, Michael Pollan, by the way. It's one oh, of his books. Oh, of course it is. His most recent <laughs> books. Yeah. But he's, he's talking about how ego, uh, caffeine is the psychoactive drug that, solidifies the ego the Mm. the personal ego like yeah where you know psychedelics dismantle that Mm -hmm. caffeine is the opposite and we all drink caffeine almost on a daily basis (laughs) and our society has been doing that for a few like about a thousand years now yeah uh, or not even uh, like well a little over a thousand years because it's like 800 ad is when we discovered uh caffeine but yeah yeah, it's highly normalized and yeah michael pollan is great i read his book um how to change what you think and how to change your mind or how to change your mind thank I you have a um, <laughs> yeah and it's it's interesting how like psilocybin and some of those other psychedelics what what they really do is they're not actually activating the brain so much as they are depressing the default mode net, network yep. mode which is the part of us that has ego and identity and things like that but you know i think it all kind of goes back to anytime you're gripping onto anything whether you're gripping onto the caffeine or whether you're gripping onto your belief system is there's going to be suffering there's going to be mm-hmm. suffering there's going to be separation um so i recently have been defaulting back to uh, like the dao a lot and some of the teachings um from the dao just because they have this very watery philosophy about not holding on to anything right whether mm-hmm. it's you know activism or belief in samskaras or that you know even believing that yoga is the best thing for people like learning how to just let all that go because the more that I cling to that the more suffering I cause for myself when other people don't agree with me right um and yeah if there's one one book I wish more people were picking up it was it would probably be the it would probably be the Tao just because um, so many people are clinging to their beliefs and they're clinging to what they think is the right way mm-hmm. to, to make a better world. Well, we're all trying to, like, I think there's deep wisdom in the Tao because cause it also, at, at, at the same time that we're trying to, to, like, force other people to believe the way that we believe, we're also trying to figure out in a solid, like, concrete, uh, intellectual kind of way what we believe. Mm-hmm. Like, I have to have this so well-defined that I could write a manifesto yeah. and then I would never change my mind about any point in that yeah. manifesto, uh, which is absurd. <laughs> like, it's, yes, it's crazy. But that's how, I mean, that's personally how I have defaulted to for quite a long time until mm-hmm. relatively recently. Like, yeah. the last couple of years have been a lot of, like, 
oh, I don't have to intellectualize that. I don't have to understand it in a intellectual way. Like I can understand it on an emotional level. Or you don't have to be committed to your understanding of it that day. Yeah. You know, that's kind of, it can change and change on the circumstance. Like, but it, the easiest, like simplest way to boil that down is to just let go. Like, Mm -hmm. like let take your grist gripping fit. Like you can feel it in your body, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like when you feel tense and you're like holding on to something and it's like when you, that's where like breath work and stuff is so helpful mm-hmm. because it's literally just like, yeah, <laughs> like, let it go. <laughs> just let it go. Yeah. I, I'm so thankful for breath work and, and the practices. Like I, I, I do believe that they work, but I, I'm trying to rephrase my, anytime someone asks me what I believe, well, that's what I believe today. Today, mm-hmm. I believe that practices like breath work and dancing and yoga will help us release some of that internal mental gripping we have in our mind that creates so much suffering and really pulls us away from contentment. Um, and it makes me sad because I think it, I think people feel a guilt for feeling happiness in today's society mm. because there's so much chaos and poverty and death and destruction that they're they like don't allow themselves to feel happy yeah no i get that um yeah it's it's (laughs) a really real thing and um but then you you turn to people like the dalai lama or pema chodron and and they live these deep spiritual lives and they're truly at peace with how the world is and that's not to say that they aren't engaging in hard conversations or they aren't doing they're not in they're in their lane of how they're going to help the world. Um, but they still have happiness. They still have joy. The Dalai Lama's laugh is so contagious. If you haven't <laughs> yeah. listened to it, go listen to it. Um, and I, yeah, I wish that more and more people could get that reminder that like, it's okay to be happy. It's okay. We don't always need to talk about how the world is on fire, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's okay to laugh still. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's necessary. Yeah. Cause what are we do- Like, what are we doing if we're like not making room for that. Yeah. And actually the book that I had mentioned before we started the podcast uh, called Deep Survival by um, Lawrence Gonzalez, he talks about one of the reasons why some people survive near-death situations other people don't is because they're able to make light of it. And that Mm. like people in World War II and soldiers who uh, like survived when everyone else in their um, platoon didn't were like the jokester. They were the one that were always making jokes and keeping their calm and making light of the situation and making light of really devastating situation because it was a necessary mechanism for their their survival and they needed to be in a state of emotional coolness in order to, you know, duck from bombs. Yeah, so it right. was really interesting because so he talked up, about yeah. like the ne- the neuroscience of that, and like how physically in our bodies we need lightness, we need that laughter, we need comedy. Um, so yeah. As Bo Burnham would say, comedy is going to save the world. <laughs> yes. Love Bo Burnham. Yeah, he's uh, great. Uh, yeah. That's so important to remember. That I think that's actually a good point to kind of weave this into an ending is that like it's okay to be to be happy. Because the show is called Happier Here after yeah. all. So that's that's kind of the point is to, to help us find ways to find our, ourselves back to that, mm-hmm. um, that state and live a little lighter and live a little um, happier. More often, I don't think it's possible to be like happy all the time. Yeah, like I'm not even the Dalai Lama is happy all the time, but most of the time. Yeah, but it's okay to feel joy, and I think it's okay to, like, I'm learning after 33 years that it's okay to ask those questions and to spend some time in meditation and contemplation. And it's also okay to set them aside and go run into an ocean mm-hmm. or go eat a piece of chocolate cake. You know, we're here <laughs> as humans to learn and and 
and, and evolve and go on these spiritual journeys. But I think we're also here to be in these human bodies and enjoy, you know, what it, what it feels like to, to, to touch, to smell, to taste. Um, I have a, a, an interesting follow-up question that oh, I have yeah. to ask you now. Okay. <laughs> Shoot. Uh, um, so in a lot of spiritual practices and a lot of people that I talk to that are on, you know, uh, um, some kind of spiritual path, it seems like, or it can seem like they often aspire, like the path aspires to leave humanhood, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> Which seems counterintuitive, like counterintuitive to, to the uh, like core of the teachings a lot of the time. And to me, I don't know if I've figured out how to reconcile that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just wondering, like with your kind of more, ex- uh, you know, expansive uh, knowledge on, on religions and, and, <laughs> and those things than me, uh, what your perspective is on that. And is that true across the board or is it just a couple of the practices that seem to aspire towards that? Yeah. Well, I don't want to make any claims that I'm a <laughs> master on the different philosophies. I mean, you literally have a master's in. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, I, you know, so much of it is based on interpretation, you mm-hmm. know, so what the actual text of the Vedas meant by something is always going to be interpreted in a human lens. Um, and we're always going to anthropomorphize everything. So it's hard to say like, what, what did these ancient teachings really mean and how seriously were we meant to take them? How strict are we supposed to be with them? Um, and I, I don't know, I personally, in my journey, I, I did the, the strict aesthetic disciplined, I'm going to, you know, not drink alcohol. I'm going to not engage in sugar. I'm going to make sure I'm on my meditation cushion every morning. And it was rigid. It was rigid. And I felt constricted and it felt, um, it didn't feel like I was being free. It mm-hmm. felt like I was holding on to something. I was holding on to needing to be strict. I was holding on to the discipline. I was gripping it so tightly. And I actually had a very distinct moment. And um, I did a, a 500-hour teacher training. I was, I was participating as a student. And we went to do Kirtan, a, a devotional song to the gods and the goddesses. And she started playing the harmonium, which gets me every time. And my teacher says, you know, when we sing our love songs to God, sometimes we remember how sweet it is to sing, how sweet it is to have this human voice to sing to our beloved, that we forget about having to transcend life. We can just enjoy it. And then we had this beautiful kirtan session where we sang and we all got up and danced and I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. And I was like, oh yeah, like you mean I don't have to transcend? You don't, I don't have to solve the mystery. I can just enjoy being human. I can just eat cake. Like this, this was just a huge aha moment for me. And I feel like I've gotten less rigid with my practice. Granted, I still wake up and meditate every morning because that's my Prozac. (laughs) That's how I I get by. Um, But I've chosen to be less gripping with things because if you grip to any modality or any method, you're going to find yourself um, in attachment. Um, so, and I think all those practices try to teach that it's like, you know, here's one way, but if you say that this is the only way, then you're lost, then go find a new modality. Ram Dass talks about this too. He's like, if, you know, if you use a modality or use, use a methodology that is taking you to, to get closer to God and you find yourself addicted to it, or like you, you can't operate and do other human things unless you're doing this, this certain way, then you need to throw out that modality and go find something else. Mm. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, you don't, the other thing that I love, he says, he's like, do you want to be high or do you want to be free? 
And a lot of people that are on that stricter aesthetic journey, it's like, yeah, they're a little bit higher because their bodies are clean because they're not eating food and they're, you know, doing breath exercises every day. So they're a very pure channel, but that pure channel is usually going to have the after effect of feeling that sense of high or spiritual high. You, you might relate it to a runner's high. And he's like, you're going to fall down though. Something human is going to happen and it's going to drop you. And then you're going to cling to your practice to try to get you back up. And if you find that you're doing that, like, what, what are you really after? Are you really after being high? Are you trying to be free? Are you trying to not need anything? Mm. And that's why I go back to why I said I don't want a seeker is because I want to be in a place where I don't seek anything. I don't seek yeah. anything to be different than what it is. Um, I used to be strict vegetarian. And now I'm like, you know what? I'm going to eat what I feel like my body needs. And if somebody serves me something that I don't like, I'm probably still going to eat it because if I cling to not being able to eat that, like I cause more suffering for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think it all goes back to non-attachment. And again, if you're attached to one way, um, you're going to find yourself falling. Hmm. All right. <laughs> well, thank you, Bridget. Yeah. For, thank you. Uh, this is great. Joining me and, and talking. Uh, I, I, both your lived experience and your intellectual uh, experience are, are, you know, very interesting to, to dive into these topics. And I'm, I'm sure if I talk to you about this a year later, you probably have different thoughts. Yeah, I'll have a different place. modality, you a different methodology. Tomorrow, so, uh, maybe we'll have to do that. So yeah. uh, awesome. thank you for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. I appreciate being on the show and you asked me to be on the show and I love this conversation.